0: Hello, sports fans, and welcome to Let Me Speak, the show that shares sports' biggest headlines explained, uninterrupted, and maybe a little audacious. I'm Joe Braverman, and today's topics we'll be discussing are... We break down another hectic week of NBA news, including the conference finals and the results from the draft lottery. Plus, could the Montreal Canadiens or New York Islanders really win the Stanley Cup? And, approaching the halfway point of the season, the surprises and disappointments in the MLB. It's episode 29 of Let Me Speak, and it starts right now. Here we are on Thursday, June 24th, 2021, 29th episode of Let Me Speak. Thank you very much for tuning in. I apologize if my voice sounds a little bit congested. I've been dealing with a little bit of a cold the past couple of days. We're on the downside, though, and it's good that we're doing it now before my wonderful sister gets married on July 4th, which that is a precursor, just letting Everyone know that we are going to be off for a little bit of time. Uh, At least next week we will be off. The week after that is still up in the air. We'll still decide on that. But just know that next week there will not be a new episode as I will be off. Going to celebrate my wonderful sister Julianne and Pat who was on the show a couple of weeks ago diving into the NHL. They are going to get married. we got a beautiful wedding coming up, and I'm really looking forward to that. And kind of taking my mind off the madness that's going on in the sports world right now. And I don't think there's any league making more news than the NBA. It already feels like the offseason's getting underway with the mix of the conference finals getting underway. And that's how we're going to start our show is just going into the madness of the NBA. But before we get into the conference finals, you got to address the elephants in the room and that was from the conference semifinals, the I would say the top 3 title contenders in no particular order were eliminated. The Sixers, the Nets, the Jazz all got eliminated and they all kind of had their different their different ways of doing it. I mean, the Nets were dealing with a ton of injuries And just very worn down. The Jazz also had their injuries, but they kind of had it in their grasp as well. And then Philly just completely blew it. Totally blew it. So, I mean, when you look at... We'll start with with Utah, because I was really banking on them going to the NBA Finals. I totally thought that they were going to be able to be that team where... You know, they don't get upset in that second round like they do year after year after year because I thought they had all the pieces. I thought Donovan Mitchell was getting himself into that superstar status and that would take him past the Clippers. And the Clippers didn't have Kawhi Leonard. Keep that in mind. But you got to remember, this was a Utah team that had a 25-point third-quarter lead in Game 6. And they did have Mike Conley, though he was limited Utah should have had this they should have had this okay they totally should have had it because after they took that 2-0 lead they lost four straight after that including the last two games which what I would call very poor second half performances poor second half performances and you only got to hope that this isn't a one-off for Utah that they can continue to have this success but then going on to Brooklyn obviously that's the biggest story Because Brooklyn was the presumptive NBA champion by most when they acquired James Harden. But they just had a ton of health problems. James Harden dealing with that hamstring. When he came back, he was limited. Kyrie Irving leaving the floor with the ankle injury. And that just forced Kevin Durant to do so much. And he really did all he could. I mean, think of Game 7. In 53 minutes, 48 points, 9 rebounds, 6 assists. He could have done... You can't say he could have done more because he did all he could. And it was really up to the guys behind him. And he didn't have any size down low. No one could defend in the paint. And his perimeter guys just couldn't make shots. Joe Harris wasn't being that knockdown shooter. And, you know, like I said, James Harden was limited. So he wasn't his old self. But I think this is no time to panic for Brooklyn, they've got all three guys returning. They're hopefully going to be fully healthy come 2022. The only problem that I would see is the coaching staff. I mean, you're talking Steve Nash in his first year and he's gifted some superstars. He's gifted a big 3 and you know, when you have a rookie head coach, you're going to fe- you're going to realize that he's not going to be able to push the right buttons every single time. And I don't think anyone was expecting Steve Nash to be the ultimate difference maker for this Nets team, because I still think he's got some learning to do. The benefit, though, was that he had experience around him. He had Mike D'Antoni as an assistant. He had Ime Udoka as an assistant. You know, he had the staff around him who had experience, but now he might not have that because D'Antoni, he's going for a second interview with the Blazers, Udoka, just got hired yesterday as the Celtics head coach. You know, there's a lot of pieces on that coaching staff that might go away. They might go away and not be there for Nash come next season. And then the second thing I would say is that they need a defensive-minded 4 or 5. They need someone who can defend in the paint, maybe be a lob threat around a rim, maybe like a JaVale McGee or a Dwight Howard, because Blake Griffin, he played great. He played great. He wasn't, you know, his old self about seven or eight years ago, but he still played great when he signed on to Brooklyn. But I don't think I don't think he's gonna be that defender that you're asking for to stop a Giannis or a Joel Embiid. A guy like that. So that's I think their only need that they need. Otherwise, Brooklyn should be fine for next year. And hell, I'll even put him as an early title favorite with the roster that they they still have with that big three and if they stay healthy now of course everyone's talking about Philly and how they blew it in the seven game series against Atlanta which we're learning after last night that Atlanta was no slouch but Philadelphia you know with the roster that they have when you have an unstoppable presence like Joel Embiid you think it should be an easy series And he did everything he could, similar to Durant. But the biggest problem that they had was just these in-game adjustments because when you're realizing that Ben Simmons isn't this guy that you want him to be, you have to change it on the fly. Take him off the floor. Get someone else in there. So I'm not going to say it's entirely on Ben Simmons. I would say 60% of it would be on Ben Simmons and his lack of aggressiveness, the other forty percent is on the rest of the team. You know, I don't like Embiid throwing Ben Simmons under the bus. I I don't I don't like that, especially from Embiid. Doc, you could sort of say that because he is the head coach and he's got to evaluate his roster. But Embiid, this is the guy. You know, you ask him two or three years ago what guy he'd want to he ride for, he would say, "I'm sticking with Ben. I'm sticking with Ben." and now all of a sudden when you can't when you fail to meet expectations you throw him under the bus like that like that's not a good move by Joel that's not a good move now obviously the 76ers problem is going to be about Ben Simmons and you have to figure out it's all mental it's all mental right now for Ben Simmons because we've seen in the regular season and we've seen in years past he has no problem getting to the rim Him putting up layups, and he doesn't mind taking free throws despite the fact that he misses most of them. But you have to sort of find the key and unlock it to figure out why he wasn't doing it in this postseason. Was it because it was all mental? Because remember in Game 7, everyone will talk about how he was right under the bucket, but he gave it up instead of taking the shot. Like, he was that scared to take a shot because he doesn't want to get fouled. He doesn't want to go to the free throw line. And what you could say about free throws is that half of it is mental. Half of it is mental. When it's just you, the clock, the game is winding down, the crowd's sort of screaming at you, stuff like that. Is this going to be a problem going forward for Simmons? Because obviously the story is that he can't shoot. He can't. He doesn't have an outside shot, and until he gets it, he's not going to be as valuable the question becomes is this going to be a long term thing or can you change this in the off-season? I say until then you've got to figure out what his trade value is if it's something good then maybe you pull the trigger you get you get Embiid some help you get him a point guard who can shoot because they've got Tobias Harris they've got Seth Curry they've got a bunch of offense but is Simmons the guy Because when people were talking about him in the league, a 6'10 point guard, like that's a dream scenario. But a bigger dream scenario would be a 6'10 point guard who can shoot, and Ben Simmons can't shoot right now. This is kind of similar to the Kemba Walker situation in Boston, where years ago he would have a big trade value, but it's just kept getting diminished and diminished and diminished. This one clearly for different reasons as compared to Walker. But Ben Simmons... Is right now, at this moment, a liability for the 76ers? A liability. And I would not be surprised to see him in something other than a 76ers jersey. The question is, what is Daryl Morey and Doc Rivers, what do they think about Simmons, and can they fix it, ultimately? Can they fix this problem for Simmons? Because, who knows, maybe they wait mid-season to make a trade, to let Ben Simmons sort of establish himself. Or is he at his peak in terms of trade value at this moment? That'll be something to really keep a close eye on once the offseason really hits. But diving into the action on the court, the conference finals. I mean, what we've seen the first couple of games has been outstanding, mostly in the Western Conference Finals. We've seen two games. Suns took them both over LA. Game three is going to be tonight when we record, so it could be a 3-0 lead for Phoenix By the time this episode gets released. But I mean what a game. A few nights ago. When DeAndre Ayton had that game winning alley-oop. What a great play. And Monty Williams should be saluted. For going with that lob play. And Jay Crowder with a great pass too. Just everything about that was set up perfectly. But the thing you have to remember. Is that the Clippers have done this before in the past. They were down 2-0 in their previous two series, first against Dallas, then against Utah. So you can't close the book on this series just yet. You can't close it. Because Paul George again, I continue to say it, he's just the Clippers are too inconsistent, I would say, to really put a stamp on them. If Phoenix gets that 3-0 lead or if they get the 3-1 lead, then I'll feel much better about this. And I like this Suns team, but you have to look at the Clippers. I mean, without Kawhi Leonard, who is their best player? No doubt about it. Their best player. I mean, PG13, he's doing all he can. Reggie Jackson is stepped up great offensively as the number 2 scoring option. The problem is the Clippers don't win without Kawhi Leonard. They just don't. Cuz I mean, look at look at the numbers in game 2. Paul George, 26 points on 10 of 23 shooting, 1 of 8 from 3. Okay, 6 rebounds, 6 assists as well. So again, they're too inconsistent, but they do get to go on their home court. So I'm not going to totally write off the Clippers just yet. But I will say it's very, it's very hard to really have faith and confidence in them. I get that they did take it down to the wire in Game 2, but still... You look at this Phoenix team, even without Chris Paul. I mean, Devin Booker putting up 40 in Game 1. He's unreal. He, he with Trey Young, has turned himself into a superstar this year. He's turned himself into a superstar. And while Booker is great, he's not the predominant X-Factor that I'm really looking at. I'm looking at two players right now being the X-Factor. The first one, DeAndre Aiden. Because when you look at the first two games... Points in the paint right now are in favor of Phoenix, one fourteen to sixty four. That just shows you that the Clippers have nothing to stop the inside game of DeAndre Ayton. Phoenix could attack the paint all they want. Clippers don't have any defenders down low. I mean, you got Boogie Cousins as your center, but he's more of a offensive guy than a defensive guy. And Ivica Zubac, he's not a defender either. He's not a rim protector. Phoenix can get to the paint wherever he wants and that's where they should really be looking at DeAndre Ayton in those post-ups and those isolations I mean they should have their way and then the second player for Phoenix who's an x-factor Cameron Payne this guy was basically out of the league for the last two or three years and because Phoenix didn't have any bodies in the bubble last year they signed Payne and look at what he did in game two in the absence of CP3 29 points and 9 assists. All right? This dude has the confidence. And not only that, even when Chris Paul does return to the lineup. That's your guy who's coming off the bench. That you ask 9 teams out of 10, they would want him on their roster, on their bench if he's got the confidence like that. I like Cameron Payne. I'm a big fan of him, and he's going to be that X factor. If he has a great game, even when Paul returns, Paul will be the starting point guard. Payne will be that backup point guard. If he even puts up close to the numbers that he had in game two, even if he gets like 15 and six, then Phoenix will be a dominant team. And at this moment, Phoenix is my favorite. They're my NBA title favorite because just of the way they've played on both ends of the floor. And my early prediction is to see them come out of the series and get to the NBA Finals. Now to the other conference finals in the East. We got the Hawks and the Bucks, And obviously, they had their game won last night. Atlanta taking that one, 116-113. But let me tell you, I watched that game from start to finish. Trey Young. Trey Young is a guy who is built for these kind of moments. If I haven't said it in the past, I'll say it again. He is a superstar who is made for these kind of moments. I mean, a 48-point, 11-assist double-double in Game 1 in your conference final debut. Just absolutely unreal. And something that's not getting talked about, John Collins with a great game. I thought he was a great support. He was making those outside shots. I mean, 23 points, 15 rebounds. You know, they had... A bunch of great guys. Also, Clint Capella, I'll put it out there. 12 points and 19 rebounds. For a team that has the size that they do for Milwaukee, I thought they played. Atlanta did phenomenal. I mean, they shot 49.5% from the field. But this is the interesting thing right here. 8 of 32 from 3. 8 of 32. Only 25%. This is normally an Atlanta team that loves to shoot the long ball and they've got some great shooters who can shoot it. But of course, that wasn't to be in game 1. And really to me, I just look at Milwaukee and the kind of the kind of mistakes that they were making because again, they dominated the paint. 70 to 54 in the paint. They were plus 5 in the turnover margin. They had eight more assists than Atlanta. But just defensively defensively They struggled, and I'm not going to put it on one player in particularly. I'll look at Coach Bud, and just Mike Budenholzer has a really hard time with in-game adjustments. And when you're looking at the pick-and-roll scenario, when you see guys like Brook Lopez and Bobby Portis and P.J. Tucker going under the screen, Trey Young is a guy you cannot leave that kind of space. So Brook Lopez can't be hanging out in the paint all the time. Bobby Portis can't be hanging out in the paint all the time because when you do that, you let Trey Young do his little shimmy and knock a three right in your face. And we saw how animated Giannis was about that in the half, in the uh, timeout after that, saying we can't let him do that to us. So I think this just it all comes down to defensively: how is Milwaukee going to defend the pick and roll? That's ultimately what it's going to come down to because if you're double teaming Trey Young, he's going to pull that magic and find Capella or some other guy. So it's just defensive communication on the pick and roll is going to be absolutely huge because Trey Young is going to have the ball in his hands 80% of the time, 80% of the time in that pick and roll. And how are the Bucs going to defend it? Are they maybe going to bring out Giannis to stop him? Are they going to... Maybe limit the minutes on Brooke Lopez and give more minutes to PJ Tucker or Bobby Portis, like I just mentioned. Or you know maybe get Drew Holiday out there. It's it. There's a ton of questions that need to be answered for Milwaukee. Just defensive adjustments make game because you have to trade. You have to take away Trey Young. You have to limit him as much as you can. And you got to make these guys like Bogdanovich, Gallinari, Herder you know all those guys have to beat you. Trey Young putting up 48 points is tremendous, but he can't be he can't be the one guy that beats you because he's having your way. He's toying with you. And right now at this moment, I'm pretty confident in Atlanta right now and you know, if we're talking overreactions from game 1, I would pick Atlanta to win this series. I would. And I think game 2 on Friday night is going to be absolutely crucial. And I would call it a must-win for Milwaukee. I say if they don't win that game, the series is over. I say the series is over if Milwaukee doesn't win that game. Because Atlanta is a young team. Like I said, they're similar to Miami from last year. Just a lot of young guys, inexperienced. And they're maturing as the postseason goes along. So the more Atlanta wins these games, the more maturing that they're going to get. And I should also mention before we move on, Nate McMillan needs to be the head coach of that Hawks team, for the next 10 years with what he's doing. He's the interim head coach right now. Think about what Atlanta did. They were thinking about moving John Collins. They fire their head coach. They bring in Nate McMillan. What a job he has done for this Atlanta team. What a job this Atlanta team has done in this postseason. And the Hawks have positioned themselves to possibly make the NBA Finals for the first time in a very very long time but speaking of head coaches we actually just found out this morning before i get into the last topic in our nba discussion is that rick carlisle is going to be the new head coach for the indiana pacers signing a four-year deal for about i want to say 30 million was uh adrian Wojnarowski reported and i gotta say indiana needed a well-disciplined coach and i think rick carlisle is a great is a great hire Because look at what he did for dallas for the last 13 years which is another scenario in itself which we'll probably talk about in a future episode the dysfunction with the mavericks right now but indiana they were just a lost dog last year they didn't have any identity they didn't have any identity and they needed someone to sort of ring in the troops rick carlisle will do that he's a well-experienced head coach and he will hold his guys accountable. But the question is the roster. What is the makeup of this roster? You know, is Demonis Sabonis going to be the guy? Is Miles Turner going to stay? Is Malcolm Brogdon going to take that next step? We don't know this. We don't know this, and there's still a ton of answers there. But I like the start by Indiana getting Rick Carlisle. I really do. But like I said, one more off-the-court Topic And that's the draft lottery just a few days ago. We now know the order in the draft lottery. We know that the Detroit Pistons are going to get the number one pick, followed by the Houston Rockets at number two, the Cavaliers at number three, the Raptors at number four. And I got to say, Detroit getting that number one pick, it's a glimmer of hope. Not a big glimmer, but a little glimmer. I mean, this is their first number one pick since getting the great Bob Lanier in 1970, the highest they've picked since Darko Milicic at number 2, and then before that, getting Grant Hill. So you have to think there's a little bit of hope right there. Detroit, you've got two all-rookie team members in Sadiq Bay on the first team, Isaiah Stewart in the second team. You've got Jeremy Grant as a great offensive option. I still don't see the Pistons making the playoffs. Next year, unless they have a great off season, but I think ultimately Cade Cunningham at this moment is the number one pick. I think they'll get him at the point guard, and that's really the big thing: is that they've got to shore up their backcourt because you've got a great future center, Isaiah Stewart. You've got your four and your five, or your three and your four, excuse me, with Sadiq Bay, and then you got Jeremy Grant. You just got to figure out that one and two. You got to figure out your backcourt. Who are going to be the guys that you want? In that backcourt. But at number two. I mean how about Houston. The Houston Rockets. I think they could use. A guy like Jalen Suggs. Or a guy like Jalen Green. With that second pick. Because we know what they have. We have Jay Sean Tate. Who had a good year for Houston. Christian Wood was the big offseason acquisition they got. And he's proved. He proved himself scoring about 21 points a game. So that's your center. You know, what, what is Houston going to do? How are they going to sure up that backcourt? That's going to be the biggest question for this Houston team. They got to sure up similar to Detroit. They got to get that backcourt all figured out. You had Victor Oladipo, you traded him. You had James Harden, you traded him. You have Kevin Porter Jr. He's got some locker room issues. So you got to figure out what is going on in that backcourt for Houston. Then at number three. The Cleveland Cavaliers, once again, I I got a feeling that their starting five is going to be made up of top 10 draft picks. I mean, you yeah, had Darius Garland, Colin Sexton, Isaac Okoro, Jared Allen, and Kevin Love as your starting lineup right now. If you ask me, I think they're going to find their replacement for Kevin Love with that number three pick. I think they're probably going to look at Kevin Love He's getting up there in age, and he hasn't performed the same that he did on that championship year. Really, he's just fallen apart since LeBron left. He's fallen apart. But, I mean, you could say the same thing for the whole Cleveland organization. But I think with that number three pick, maybe like an Evan Mobley out of USC or some other guy, I think they'll find the replacement for Kevin Love. Because I really think they want to hold on to Jared Allen. I think they see him... As the center of the future, pair him up with a great backcourt in Sexton and Garland, and maybe, just maybe, Cleveland can get back to success. I throw a really big maybe on that, because remember when me and my pal Johnny Manfredas were singing their praises early on in the year. <laughs> and then, obviously, you have the Raptors at number four. I mean, again, just a lost year. You have to wonder, what are they going to do with this pick? Because I think they need... Two th- one of two things. One of two things has to happen. If Toronto is going to move on from Kyle Lowry, if they don't think they're going to re-sign him, you move Fred Van Vliet, who's an undersized shooting guard at this moment. He's 6'1". You move him to the point guard slot, and then you draft a shooting guard or a center. That's going to be it for Toronto, because you got to remember Toronto played their whole season in Tampa, and they had all their, they had injuries, and all that, they just looked like a lost team. Pascal Siakam had some injuries and stuff like that. Is Toronto going to get back to where they once were? We don't know that. But I think a shooting guard or a center should be absolutely huge. If Evan Mobley's still there, maybe grab him. But it'll be really interesting to see what the Raptors do this offseason. And finally, last comment on the lottery is you got to watch out for the Golden State Warriors. I mean, this, this was a team you have to remember was one good overtime period away from the playoffs. And now they have the 7th pick, which they acquired from Minnesota, and their own pick at number 14. They've got two picks in the lottery, plus a returning Klay Thompson. So if Klay Thompson is the same guy that we saw a few years ago that turned him into one of the best shooters of all time, with these number two picks, with Steph Curry, With James Wiseman. With Draymond Green. Then the Warriors could go right back to title contention. That's a big if. It's a really big if. Because remember. Thompson had a torn ACL and torn Achilles. If he's back to his old form. Then you can have much more confidence in Golden State. So just watch out for those teams. But it's been a hectic two weeks of news for the NBA. And we're just getting started. There's still... A whole lot more news and a whole lot more games to be played. Like we say week after week, the NBA isn't the only league that's got its playoffs going on. We got to talk about the NHL. They're getting closer and closer to finding out who is going to be in their Stanley Cup. We just had Game 6 last night of the first series we're going to talk about, the Islanders and the Lightning. What a Game 6 that was in Nassau Coliseum. And you got to think, what a way to go out of the Nassau Coliseum because remember, This is going to be their last year for New York in that arena. So, I mean, what a way to go out. An overtime winner, down 2-1 in the third. I mean, what a way, if they're eliminated in Game 7, what a way to go out. But let's talk about that Game 6. Let's talk about that Game 6 and really just look at what the Islanders did so well. And I don't think it's what the Islanders did well. It's what the Lightning didn't have. Because you got to remember, Nikita Kucherov, first shift. First shift of the game, he leaves with an injury. That's your leading scorer right there. Your leading scorer for Tampa. And Kucherov, look at the numbers that he's put up. 27 points in 17 games. That is a tough, tough loss. I mean... You got you got to think with Kucherov out that limits the Lightning so much, but they do have a ton of great guys behind him like Steven Stam, all those guys. But Kucherov is the guy to lead this Lightning team, and the fact that they were even able to get that two-one lead is huge. Was huge for Tampa, but then they just come back, they tie the game a minute in the overtime. Basically, a minute into overtime, Bouvier putting in that overtime winner. I mean, what a great game that was for the Islanders to stay alive and to force Game Seven. And really, just just looking at it, you know, considering what had happened in the previous game with the Lightning winning eight to nothing on their home ice. I mean, I don't think Game Seven is going to be exactly like that. I think it's going to be a lot more close than that. But just just looking at this Game 7, you know, I kinda, I've kind of i been riding with Tampa for most of the postseason. I think, you know, like I said, Kucherov being out definitely hurts. But like I said, Stamkos, Point, Maroon, Palat, Goodrow, Coleman, Hedman, McDonough. I mean, you name it, they've got so many pieces. And then Vasilevsky, of course, you know, having that shutout on his home ice, he's got to be feeling good after that but you know it's basically a flip of the coin for me it's basically a flip of the coin because the islanders i think are the much more physical team and that's what's sort of keeping them in this series is just establishing their presence early on putting on a touch a bunch of hard hits to this tampa team and it's kind of throwing off their offense a little bit and you're noticing it you know, when, when Tampa's trying to get into the zone, they've basically did the same thing that they did versus Boston, the same thing that they did versus Pittsburgh. And that's just sort of take away that high-powered offense from going on any kind of breakaway opportunities. And they're forcing a lot of turnovers, putting the hits on. I mean, they've basically let in hits in almost every single game. So that's how I think the Islanders can win this game 7 Tampa... You know, they just got to find a good way to replace Kucherov if he can't go out. If he can't go out, I think it's going to be much closer than that. But I do like Tampa. I think they'll find themselves back in the Stanley Cup. They get to be on their home ice. They've got a raucous crowd behind them. I mean, last time they were in Tampa, they won 8 nothing. Okay? Ever since dropping that game one, 2-1 to one at home. The Lightning have won game two at home. And Game 5 at home, pretty decisively. 4-2 to two in Game 2, 8 to nothing in Game 5. So, I think the Lightning are going to take this one, and I think they'll find themselves back in the Stanley Cup. But we could find out our first Stanley Cup participant after tonight, when we record, because Game 6 between the Golden Knights and the Canadians is tonight in Montreal. Now, in looking at that series, I mean... Again, this is statistically the worst playoff team in terms of regular season points. But this is no slouch. No slouch at all. How many people picked the Canadians to even make it this far? Seriously. Nobody. Nobody. And you had to think after game one, four to one, that this was going to be a really short series. But then here comes Montreal. 3 2 winning game two. 3 2 winning overtime in game three. Four to one on the Golden Knights' home ice in Game Five. This is, it it's just to me it's shocking to see Montreal go this far. And honestly, with them being on their home ice, you know I I think they could do it. I think I think they might be able to pull this one out. Because, I mean, both of their home games went to overtime. Game 3 and Game 4 went to overtime. Both teams split that series. But you've got Carey Price, just phenomenal in net, who's been phenomenal. We talked about it in previous weeks. A guy who's been around for that long, that's the goaltender you want if you've got sort of a young team, kind of an underestimated team, and if you really want to go the difference. And... Just looking at that game 5, you could just see a ton of frustration for that Vegas team. I mean, going down 3-nothing at the end of the second period and they they just felt kind of lost. They they just felt kind of lost cuz I mean, they had the same amount of shots but the Canadians were the much more physical team and you know, the Canadians got a goal on the power play that Knights didn't. The Canadians blocked 18 shots compared to the Golden Knights' 8. But the biggest difference was in that Game 5... Vegas gave away the puck 14 times. Canadians only gave it up 4 times. So that's ultimately what it is. Are the Golden Knights going to shoot themselves in the foot? Because they cannot fall behind. They cannot fall behind versus this Montreal team. They have to play ahead. They have to get the first goal. If they don't get the first goal... You're behind the eight ball already because this is just a well-disciplined Canadians team. And honestly, if you ask me, I think Montreal is going to do it. I think Montreal is going to win tonight. I think they're going to win game six. I think they're going to go to the Stanley Cup, the first Canadian team to go to the Stanley Cup since I think the Canucks did it in 2011. My numbers could be off on that one. But I think Montreal, you know, just let people keep underestimating them. Keep letting people underestimate him. Because I think Montreal, they've got the home ice. They've got Carey Price, Nick Suzuki. And they've just got a ton of great pieces that I think will come away with this game. And let's also remember Cole Caulfield. I mean, this dude wasn't even in the lineup. And now here he is putting up some insane numbers. I mean, he kind of had a quiet, a quiet Game 5, but... Still, his impact is there. And I mean, you've got Stahl, Perry, Gallagher, Edmondson, Gustafson, Petrie, Weber. I mean, this is an experienced team. That's something we haven't touched on yet, is that they had a ton of great experience. They have experience along with these young guys. Guys who have been around the blocks, they come together, and sure enough, here they are, one win away from the Stanley Cup. So I think, you know, by the time we get into next week and by the time we go to this weekend, I think we're going to see the Montreal Canadiens versus the Tampa Bay Lightning in the Stanley Cup. Am I going to put money on it? No, I'm not a gambling man. But if you're asking me, a casual hockey fan, that's who I see going toe to toe for the 2021 Stanley Cup. On now to baseball, and like I said, we're going to be off next week, and next week will turn out to be the halfway point for most teams. Most teams are sitting at about 74, 75 games, so they're very close to the halfway mark of the 162. And what's funny about this is that you'd think the story that everyone wants to talk about in baseball is the substance crackdown that got started this Monday we saw, you know, the situation in Philadelphia where Max Scherzer got checked by Joe Girardi three different times. And that's really everyone wants to talk about, but there's still a season to be played. You know, this this change did come mid-season. I talked about how much how ridiculous how ridiculous it is for the MLB to implement this mid-season rather than to wait for the off-season. And you know, some pitchers Some pitchers are not happy with this, and we'll get into that later, but we got to talk about the season right now, looking at the biggest surprises and disappointments so far from what is very close to the end of the first half of the MLB season. And The first one should be pretty stinking obvious, and it's the San Francisco Giants. I mean, come on, best record in baseball, leading the NL West by four games over the Dodgers, four and a half over the Padres. I mean, winners of eight of their last nine. I mean, it's unbelievable what this San Francisco team has been doing. And they don't even have, like, the the greatest roster out there. You look at, like, their roster. I mean, Brandon Crawford's played great. Mike Yastrzemski's played great. But it's like Evan Longoria is out. And Buster Posey hasn't played in as many games. So they don't have the greatest roster, but... Their pitching has just been out of this world. Out of this world. I mean, look at their top two starters right now. Kevin Gosman, 8-1 and one with the second-best ERA in the MLB, 1.49. Right behind him is Anthony DeSclafani, 8-2, two, 2.77 ERA, 19th in the MLB. And even in the bullpen, look at their closer, Mark Melanson. 22 saves, which is a league best. It's insane what this Giants team has been able to do in a division where the talk was all about the Dodgers and the Padres, those guys being the top two. And sure enough, here come the Giants just blowing everybody away in this first half. I mean, not only that, but just their offense, it's spotty. It's a spotty offense. I mean, first in home runs, fifth in RBIs. You know, they don't have any, like I, like I said, they don't have any guys that will jump out at you and say like, oh, that's an MVP candidate right there. It's just a bunch of guys who have really just come together at the great time. They're not even hitting too fabulous either. I mean, Crawford's hitting two fifty four, Yastrzemski's hitting two thirty three, But I think they're just getting timely hits. Timely hits is going to be the biggest thing. And they could even get better when Longoria comes back Obviously, he's been out with that shoulder injury. But, I mean, you got guys like Alex Dickerson, Wilmer Flores, Brandon Belt. They've got a lot of just well-disciplined guys. And I don't know if it's going to sustain through the second half of the year, but I do think this is a team to watch out for if they make the postseason. Because I almost think it's a lock that both the Giants, the Dodgers, and the Padres are going to get into the postseason. It's just a matter of where they get seated and stuff like that. But this Giants team, you know, when you have a team that is pitching as well as they are, that's how you get victories in the postseason, is with good pitching. And they've got it. They've got one of the best pitching rosters in, in the entire league, you know, from starting rotation to bullpen. I think that can carry them a long way as far as they want to go. But the other team who's been the biggest surprise... It's got to be the Red Sox. I mean, first in the AL East right now. Credit, it is half a game up on Tampa, who's playing phenomenal. But I mean, it's another case of Boston going from worst to first yet again. And it's all thanks to their offense. They're in the top five in almost all offensive categories. Third in batting average, fourth in RBIs, second in hits. And like I say, week after week after week in our Let's Get Local segment, the problem is going to be this pitching staff. What is this pitching staff going to look like? They're still 16th in the entire league in pitching ERA. You know, we're seeing guys like Eduardo Rodriguez, guys like Garrett Richards. They're not going the distance. They're not going deep into games. And who knows if that gets fixed when Chris Sale comes back, if he does come back for this year. But I think offensively, this team is playing great. It's kind of like a reverse of what the Giants have been doing. You know, they've got the Giants have great pitching, but a so-so offense. The Red Sox have a great offense in so-so pitching. And obviously it's led by Bogarts and Devers. Devers is, I was very surprised. I did not think he was putting up the numbers that he was putting up. I mean, leading the MLB in RBIs right now and Xander Bogarts, you know, leading all shortstops in offensive categories, you know, This Red Sox team, this team, I would say, has about five great hitters. And then the rest of the lineup is just kind of like, you know, they're good. They're not great, but they're good. You know, I think their problem still is going to be at that leadoff spot. We don't know if it's going to be Kike Hernandez. We don't know if it's going to be Danny Santana. We're still trying to figure that out. And who knows if that comes with an acquisition, if they call someone up from Worcester We don't know what that's going to be like. But this offense has been great. It's been great. And that is really right now the reason why this Red Sox team is where they are. Now, on the disappointment side, that list is so much longer than the surprise side. Because, I mean, you have your surprises. Me personally, Tampa was a surprise. But, you know, they went to the World Series last year. And they just called up the top prospect in Wanda Franco watch out for him by the way but the disappointment list is much longer much longer than the surprise list and the first the first disappointment for me has to be the Arizona Diamondbacks because they're not bad they're historically bad all right listen to some of these numbers they've lost 19 of their last 20 games including a 17 game losing streak that was just ended a few days ago 23 straight losses on the road that means when they're not at chase field they've lost 23 straight games all right this is the second worst era in the mlb 523 all right you don't gotta worry about substances for this arizona team because they are just bad. And it's such a such a huge spike when they dropped off. I mean, they're twenty one and fifty five right now, but look at the shortened season. Look at twenty twenty. I mean they were twenty five and thirty five. I wasn't horrible, but this is just I'm just blown away at like how how bad it's been for Arizona it's just been a sudden spike because this was a team a few short years ago that was in the wild card hunt and stuff like that but I mean they just have not played well just from top to bottom I mean Eduardo Escobar is hitting 242 David Peralta is hitting 257 Nick Ahmed is hitting 207 and you know Ketel Marte he missed a lot of time part of it's got to do with that but Goodness, this is just historically bad. Like it, it's worse than Baltimore right now, and Baltimore has been bad the past like four years. But just, it's just. I mean, look, look at some of the ERAs they got: Merrill Kelly, five hundred six; Madison Bumgardner, five seventy three; Riley Smith, five forty three; Matt Peacock, five twenty eight. It's just bad from top to bottom. Top to bottom, this is a bad backs team now the other team I'll throw on this list the Minnesota Twins I mean this was a Minnesota team that some people would pick to win the AL Central in the preseason and but just look at look at what they've done they've got the third worst ERA in the league they've allowed the second most home runs credit they are the eighth best batting team in terms of batting average at 246 so it's not all entirely bad but they've just got to clean up their pitching. I mean, look at some of their starters: J. A. Happ, six oh nine ERA; Matt Shoemaker is three and eight with a seven three one; Kent 4 a four eight five ERA. All right, this is a Minnesota team that really has to pick it up in the second half if they even want a chance to sniff out the postseason. Because the White Sox, they're running away with it, and you've got a feeling that Cleveland's going to get better, and you've got a feeling that Kansas City is going to get a little bit better. Detroit, I do not think so, but, you know, Minnesota is really going to have to pick up the slack here in the second half, and it all starts with their pitching, mainly their, their starting rotation. Now, the third team I'll throw on this list is, again, coming out of the NL East, and you could really make a case for all the NL East teams, but the one to me has to be the Atlanta Braves, because this was, again, a division favorite, not a... They're not totally disappointing right now. They're thirty-five and thirty-eight, only five games back of the Mets. But just for a team that has been, you know, last year they've been getting better and better and better. Last year they took it to the limit with the Dodgers in the NLCS. But seeing them in third place right now, it is kind of tough to see. I mean, credit they do have injuries to Ronald Acuna and to Travis Darno, and. But the fact that they're riding in the mid-pack level when they really should be favorites is kind of shocking. And, you know, they've got got guys who can do it. They've got Freddie Freeman. They've got Andrelton Simmons. They've got Josh Donaldson. They can come back. But they've got to be better than their 17th best MLB average. And then, obviously, the pitching. Got to get better. Got to get better. 18th in MLB in ERA. That's going to have to improve. But then there's one more team I'm gonna throw out there, kind of similar to the Braves, and that's the Cardinals. St. Louis Cardinals, you gotta remember the they've got two of what I would call the best hitters in baseball, maybe like top twenty in Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado. But they're twenty seventh in the league with a two twenty six ERA two twenty six batting average. Okay, and that's with Nolan Arenado hitting two sixty seven and Goldschmidt hitting two fifty five. First off, those numbers have gotta get better. But then you've gotta see guys like Matt Carpenter. He's gotta hit better. You got guys like Paul Dionc, guy who made an all star team not too long ago. He's gotta get better. Alright? This is just a roster that needs to improve their batting. Gotta get better at their batting. I mean, they do have Tyler O'Neill who's got uh, team leading 15 home runs, but he's hitting 275. That number's got to get better. Paul DeYoung is hitting 160. Matt Carpenter is hitting 181. All right, these guys have got to get better. They've got to get better because I, I had faith in the Cardinals. I had faith in this Cardinals team that they could go a long way in the Central Division. But lo and behold, the Brewers and the Cubs are kind of riding everything, and the Cardinals right now are sitting in fourth place. But, you know, there's a reason why there are two halves to an MLB season. It will only be a matter of time till we hit that all star break and let the real regular season get underway. As always, we go to our Let's Get Local segment of the week. This week's going to be a little bit special because we are going all Boston Celtics because the Celtics have been doing nothing but making moves and making shakeups all for the past week, and they have been dominating the headlines, and it all started with the first move of the Brad Stevens GM era, and that was making a huge trade, and I mean huge trade. Getting rid of Kemba Walker, a first-round pick from this year, which is the number 16 pick, and a 2025 second-rounder, trading them to Oklahoma City for Al Horford, Moses Brown, and a 2023 second-round pick. Now, I'll give you one reason as to why Kemba was traded. Knee issues. That knee... Still, you know, he's not the explosive kind of guy. He's still got the handles. He's still got that sort of step back, but he just wasn't the same guy that the Celtics were hoping to get for. I mean, he's a great locker room guy, but just it didn't work on the floor, and the health was ultimately the reason why Kembo was traded. Now, for what the Celtics got back, you have to think of the value that Walker had you know, couple shot knees, not the same player that he was in Charlotte. So, I mean, it's a salary dump move, but for what they got in return, it's not terrible. It's not terrible cuz it's good to see Big Al Horford back. Definitely a fan favorite when he was with the Celtics for those 3 years. But to see him back, you know, he's going to be I think he's going to be a difference maker. He's going to be a big difference maker than more people think because Remember, I would call him, like, the last good big that the Celtics had. Not necessarily, like, a center, because he would be our small ball center. But he can space the floor. He can defend. He's a good passer. I think that, you know, he doesn't have to take that sort of same load that he did when he was around with Kyrie Irving, Terry Rozier, and stuff like that, you know, He's playing now with an established Jalen Brown, with an established Jason Tatum. So, and arguably from the last five years of his career, they came in Boston. So, so I think like when you look at the past five years, his best years were with the Celtics. I still think you know his time in Atlanta is still the best of his career. But you know, I think Horford is going to be—he's going to be that guy that people you're either going to have two opinions about him. You're going to love him for being on the team or you're going to hate him. That's the thing because, yes, Horford's up there in age. He's about like 34, 35, something like that. But he was still an effective role player when the Celtics team made the run that they did a couple of years ago. So I'm on the side of I like this move. I like getting Al Horford back. I question a little bit Moses Brown. I understand he had like a 23 rebound game. When the Celtics played him. But it's kind of like having just like another taco fall. Or something like that. Considering you also have Rob Williams. You have Tristan Thompson. Who I think the Celtics going to try and trade. You know. Your your big situation is going to be a little different. It's going to be a little different. And I don't know where Moses Brown is going to fit. You know. It could be a battle between him and Taco. If they do resign Taco. For possibly a backup center job. Or something like that. Because. Honestly, I'm a Taco Fall fan, not just because of his size and his length and his personality, but I just want to see him get some meaningful minutes and just see what he does with it, not just because of injuries. I want to see what he does getting meaningful minutes as a backup center or something like that. I just want to see it, you know, and then I'll and then I'll sort of make an opinion from there. But considering the value that Kemba Walker had for trading him, this wasn't a bad move. Now would you maybe trade him for Ben Simmons? You know, maybe. Maybe. I I'm not really the biggest Ben Simmons, you know for the for the kind of player that he is, you know, six ten point card who doesn't shoot, I don't think the Celtics are the kind of guy or the kind of team that would really sort of fit for for Ben Simmons. I don't think that'd be the, the team that they're looking for. But I mean, you've got nine million more dollars. You know, when you're talking about a reducing salary, doing basically a salary dump move. The net, the next issue I would say is addressing the point guard. And now you have the flexibility to do that, whether that's you know maybe trading Marcus Smart or grabbing someone on a minimum deal in free agency. You know, who is going to be the point guard? Who's going to be the starting point guard? Because are you going to give it to Marcus Smart? Is Peyton Pritchard going to be the guy? You know, what that's going to be the next biggest domino to fall for the Celtics team because they've got the next domino that just fell yesterday when in Brad Stevens' second move as Prez is hiring Ime Udoka as the head coach. Now, for those who don't really know about his background, he is a former player, spent a couple of years in the mid 2000s. He had Lakers, Blazers, I think, were. Listed as his team, he was an assistant for seven years for Greg Popovich. He's coming from the Greg Popovich tree of coaching. And just this past year, he was an assistant for the Brooklyn Nets, which I had previously mentioned before. Now, the biggest thing for this kind of head coaching hire is you have to want to accommodate your stars. And from what we're hearing in reports, they got strong recommendations from Marcus Smart, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum because those three were coached by him on Team USA in the FIBA World Cup just a few short years ago. So if you're getting recommendations from them, you definitely got to listen to them, and you got to accommodate your stars because if you're accommodating them, that will make them want to stay. It will make them want to stay. Are they still going to stay? We still have no idea. We don't know if Tatum's going to request a trade in a year or two or something like that. But if you're accommodating your stars, this is the kind of guy you want. And from what we're hearing, (coughs) from what we're hearing about Udoka, he's a guy who connects with his players. He, you know, holds accountability. And, you know, I think it's still a wait and see. It's kind of like a wait and see just to see how this is going to work out. If the Celtics go back to success and go to, back into that top four top five then you could say that this was a good hire this was a good hire I've heard a lot of good things about Udoka and we're hearing reports that he did a lot of good things in the interview that made him stand out and you know it's not bad I'm not gonna you know there were really two guys uh looking in the past week and hearing all the reports that I would have liked to have seen the Celtics hire and that would be This guy, and it would be Chauncey Billups, one of those two. And they got one of the two. So I'm satisfied with the move. I'm okay with the move for head coach. And I think, you know, kind of similar to Brad Stevens, especially hearing a report from Jared Weiss in The Athletic, you know, this is something that really the Celtics needed. And that's just, like, a tough guy who will really get on their player's And basically be the opposite of Brad Stevens because that transitions into this article that came out about a week ago from Jared Weiss about just the dysfunction in that Celtics locker room from this past year. I mean, Brad, the reports are coming out. Some interesting quotes were saying that Brad Stevens was harder on Kemba Walker because than everyone else because of his defense. There was an anonymous player that told Blake Griffin not to sign when he was released by the Pistons. A lot of the team was indifferent about Kyrie stomping on the logo. And players were annoyed by the college offense that Brad Stevens was running. Gosh, let me let me just try and break this down piece by piece. You know, those were the four that really stood out to me. The first statement, Stevens being harder on Kemba. Why? Why was he being harder on Kemba Walker? Because he's an established veteran? You got to keep in mind, this was the same coach... Who brought in Isaiah Thomas and made him a superstar. Made Isaiah Thomas a superstar for two years. And you weren't getting on him for his defense. Why are you getting on it for Kemba? Why are you getting on it for Kemba? When you signed Kemba Walker, you knew you weren't going to get an elite defender. You know? Teams were going to switch on him. They were going to get Giannis on him. They were going to get Jimmy Butler on him. You knew that when you signed him to that huge deal. So I... I'm on Brad's or uh, I'm on Brad Stevens for say for trying to be hard on him. You got to be hard on everybody if you're a good coach. I mean, the second statement, a player telling Blake Griffin not to sign here. I mean, when you're hearing about this dysfunction, you know, you don't blame him for telling him, hey, don't come here. it's not not the greatest place. We're not going anywhere. I mean, that's saying a lot. Now who that player is, we don't know. It would be very interesting to know who that was because then we could really dive into it. could really dive into who told Blake Griffin not to come. Okay? Number three, the indifference about Kyrie Irving stomping on the logo. Okay? Let's break this down. I'll first precursor say that I hated it. Absolutely hated it. That's as a sign of disrespect. It's a sign of disrespect when you're stomping on another team's logo. Okay. The problem is, you have guys who are basically in love with Kyrie. One of them being your superstar, Jason Tatum. Okay. Tatum's like a little brother to Kyrie when we're hearing about this. All right. You're telling me that Tatum has no problem with that? That's the accountability that I think Brad Stevens is sort of talking about. Not necessarily with that scenario, but just, I mean. If you have someone doing that, you look, you do that in the mid-2000s or you do that in the 90s, you're getting your ass whooped by KG or Shaq or Kobe Bryant or something like that. All right, There's, That's why Kevin Garnett talks about the sense of pride when you play for the Celtics, a sense of Celtic pride. And when someone does something like that, you don't just walk away from that and say, oh, I didn't see it. You got to step up and realize that it's more about the name on the front of the jersey than it is on the back. That's the biggest thing. I mean, you could make a novel about the type of players that have come through on this Celtics team. Bird, McHale, Parrish, Heinsohn, Havlicek, Russell, Pierce, Garnett. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And you ask any of those guys, they would be fighting Kyrie Irving in the locker room. Okay? I get that this is sort of the era where everyone's all buddy-buddy with each other, but you have to take some kind of stand when something like that happens, okay? You have to take a stand for something like that, and that's what I think is going to change. That's what I think Udoka is going to do. If you see someone, you know, imagine if Trey Young did that against the Celtics team. You want guys to react like Giannis did, you know, when you saw him in that timeout saying, like, he's doing that shimmy, he can't be doing that to us. You should get mad at that the way Giannis should get mad at that. And then finally, the last statement I took away, that players were annoyed by the college offense Brad Stevens had. You got to remember, Brad Stevens was a college coach. And basically, his plan in that postseason was a lot of ISO ball, a lot of Jason Tatum ISO, a lot of Jalen Brown ISO, Campbell Walker ISO. That does not work in the NBA, okay? Okay. This Celtics team is founded on ball movement. Not one guy over the rest. All about team ball movement. Okay, that doesn't work. Isolation doesn't work. Doesn't work. And there are guys like Tatum who are great in isolation. But how is he going to get better? Through ball movement. That's the biggest thing. Ball movement with this Celtics team. Alright, so... I totally understand basically every single point that was being made by Jared Weiss in this article because this Celtics team was the biggest dysfunction in maybe the entire league, but hopefully with the trading of Kemba Walker and the hiring of Ime Udoka, that dysfunction can get cleaned up. Lastly, we end our show with our LOL moment of the week. Now, I mentioned in our MLB segment the story around baseball has been the start of the substance crackdown. We're seeing it through multiple pitchers, seeing umpires come up and check for substances. I briefly mentioned the Philadelphia situation involving Joe Girardi and Max Scherzer. But there was one scenario that happened in the first 24 hours that really have people... Kind of just scratching their heads and, in this point, laughing out loud. So, without further ado, this week's LOL Moment of the Week goes to Sergio Romo, the pitcher for the Oakland Athletics. Now, let me break this down for you. It is Tuesday night, 7th inning in Texas against the Rangers on Tuesday night. All pitchers are subjected to substance checks a few times. And this seventh inning, Romo comes in and he gives up a home run. He gives up a home run in that inning with two outs. Next batter, he gets that third out. He gets that third out, and what does the ump want to do? He wants to check for substances. And what does Sergio Romo do? Well, he takes off his hat, he takes off his glove, and he proceeds to pull his pants down to show that there are no substances on him at all. I understand not being happy about these checks, but pulling your pants down, not only on national television, but in front of maybe 15, 20,000 people, maybe more than that. I mean, I would not do that at all. If someone told me to check for substance, you know, I wouldn't be pulling my pants down, I'd just be like opening the flap, just being like, you know, this, you can look on my belt, you can look at my waistline, There, there's nothing there, but Romo decides to pull his pants down, I mean, good thing he had like sliding shorts or something like that, you know, good thing that was there, it could have blinded everybody, but you can kind of sense the frustration for getting a check in that point, I mean, why would the umpire be checking it after he gave up a home run than that okay like what if he was using a substance you know he probably wouldn't have gave up that home run so in romo's eyes he's kind of thinking why why do i need to be checked if i just gave up a home run okay why why do i need to check if that just happened if i had substance i wouldn't have given up that home run so you kind of get that frustration and i would kind of be frustrated too but not to a point where i pull my pants down in public i would not do that i mean part of it could also be that romo maybe was using substances in the past maybe that's why he's all frustrated with this and that's why most pitchers are frustrated with this maybe but we can only just speculate but you also gotta remember what happened before he dropped his pants he just basically dropped his hat and his glove at the ump's feet. Okay, that could have been subject to an ejection. So Romo was lucky that he didn't get tossed out of the game for that because that that could be a sign of showing an umpire up. And if the umpire maybe saw that you know, as showing him up, he could have easily tossed him out of the game and he wouldn't have been back for the eighth inning. But what's kind of funny is that this brings up uh, one of my favorite uh, memories of old-time baseball, and that is Psycho... Steve Lyons. Now, Steve Lyons is, I don't know if he's still an analyst for the Red Sox on Nesson, but he was a former player for Boston. And there was one moment that my dad always tells me about where Steve Lyons steals the base. He slides head first into second. And to get all the dirt out from his pants, he pulls his pants down. Okay, so just seeing Sergio Romo do that. Brought a little bit of memories about Steve Lyons pulling his pants down, obviously for a different reason, but it just brought up memories of that. Two different scenarios. I still think Steve Lyons did it a little bit better. But, you know, this is the first time in a long time that I've seen a professional athlete in a game drop his pants on the floor. Drop his pants. Look, I'm clean. It's like like a criminal being you know, frisked on the wall or against the car, just saying, like, look, you could look everywhere. I got nothing. I got nothing. So, Sergio Romo, you may not like the substance checks, but might want to learn on how to treating it better because pulling your pants down in public in a Major League Baseball stadium has earned your way into this week's LOL Moment of the Week. So that will do it for this edition of Let Me Speak. Thank you very much for watching and for listening. Make sure you're dropping those likes, those comments, and make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just search Let Me Speak Podcast. And remember, as always, if you've got a point you've got to get across, just tell the whole world, shut up and let me speak.